today we are finishing a five-part series in some various psalms. And we are looking today at Psalm 2. encourage you to turn your, in your Bibles to Psalm 2. This is what Bible scholars refer to as a royal psalm. And we have been looking at these psalms of Zion, these royal psalms that celebrate the Davidic king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And we'll find even today in Psalm 2 that this psalm goes back and is based on 2 Samuel 7, that passage where the Lord promises to David that he would have a descendant that would sit on his throne forever and ever. And as we come to Psalm 2, we come to a psalm celebrating that king's reign. Now we're going to see this morning that ultimately this psalm points to the descendant of David, the anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. The Greek equivalent to the word Messiah is Christos or Christ. It ultimately points to the person of Jesus Christ who is yet to return, who will sit on David's throne and reign over the Lord's kingdom forever and ever. And as we look with that end, the psalmist here in Psalm 2 is talking about the fact that the Son is going to establish his rule. He is going to establish his reign. But the peoples of the earth are in rebellion. And the rulers of the peoples of the earth are in rebellion. So the psalmist calls them to believe in God's word, to stop rebelling against the Son, and to yield to him. Why? Because he's coming. This anointed king, this descendant of David, is coming to set up his reign and to bring judgment on those who stand in rejection of him. And the psalmist is going to say that those who think that they can stand in rejection of the Son are fools. I'm going to read the psalm. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? In the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak at them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence do and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
If you'd go to the lower level of our house, you will find a large cardboard box. A utility box that my wife transformed into a cardboard house for my oldest granddaughter, Eloise. It has doors, it has windows, it is just quite the little house. And Eloise loves to come and play in the cardboard house. Well, who wouldn't? If they could make one big enough for me, I would like a big cardboard box. We all love a big box. Even a little box is great, but a big box has innumerable possibilities. Just think of the battles that you can have with a cardboard fort. Well, what the psalmist says here is that the nations of the earth stand in rejection of the Lord's anointed king. But to stand in rejection of the Lord's anointed king is like doing battle from a cardboard fort. It's not going to hold up. Now this psalm would have been sung. Remember the psalms are Israel's hymnal. It would have been sung every time a descendant of David was put on the throne and anointed as king. It probably was also sung when Israel was threatened by their enemies as a reminder that if the Lord has placed the king on the throne, no one can stop him. And the point that the psalmist here is saying is to stand against the Lord, to rebel against the Son, is as about as futile as trying to do battle from a cardboard fort. You just can't stand against the Lord. So the psalmist begins in verses 1 through 3, depicting the peoples of the earth and their rulers and their rulers foolishly standing in rejection of the Lord and his anointed king. Notice verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? The peoples devising a vain thing or an empty thing. In other words, the psalmist is saying, why are these people coming up with such a foolish plan to think that they can actually stop God, to think that they can actually have an offensive against the Lord's anointed king. Now remember that this psalm would have been meaningful to generation after generation as each son of David and grandson of David and great-grandson of David was anointed and placed on David's throne. But ultimately, we see even the New Testament writers understand that this psalm is picturing the Davidic king, the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself, who will sit on David's throne forever and ever. And it is that picture that is of great interest to us today because it is that son of David, Jesus himself, that the nations are going to think 
that they can stand against. And God looks down from the heavens and says, good luck from your cardboard forts. Why are they doing such an empty thing? Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why are they so upset? Verse 3 tells us. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, for the nations, for the peoples of the earth, to yield to the authority of the anointed king, to them is to give up their quote-unquote freedom. Little do they know, little do they understand that the only way to find true freedom is to yield to the Son. This past week, had a conversation with a young man who's done a lot of evangelism on the university campus And he mentioned that he interfaces with two different kinds of atheists. And he had labels for them that interested me. Angry atheists and intellectual atheists. And he said most of the atheists that he runs into are angry atheists. A few are intellectual atheists that somehow have been able to come up with a a reasonable plan according to them to state that there is no such thing as God, but most are angry with their fist raised to the heavens in a picture saying there is no God. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. And that's the picture the psalmist has here. The peoples of the earth, their hands raised to the heavens in a fist saying, no way, I will not yield to the anointed king, the son of God. You see, to yield to the Messiah would mean to them giving up their quote-unquote freedom. How does a person stop Standing against the Lord. How does a person stop rejecting ultimately the anointed king, Jesus Christ himself? How does a person move from rejecting Jesus Christ to submitting to him? Well, the Bible in the New Testament shows us how one makes that progression. And as we come down through this psalm, the psalmist is going to ask the nations, the peoples of the earth, to make that very choice. In order to stop rejecting Jesus Christ, the first thing that needs to happen is that people need to recognize that they need Jesus Christ. The Bible depicts us all in the same place as sinners. To sin against God is to think things, to do things that are contrary to his character, to his attributes, to his revealed will. 
And the Bible in the New Testament in the book of Romans says that each and every one of us have done that. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is true, if a person could be perfectly obedient to every one of God's laws, they could be right with God. But the books of book of James in chapter 2, verse 10, tells us about that. When the author of James, or when James says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. You see, no one can earn a relationship with God. We're all in the same place. Sinners. We're asking the question, how can a person move from standing in rejection of Jesus Christ to yielding to him? And the Bible says the first thing that has to happen is we have to understand we need him. We have to recognize we're sinners. The next thing that has to happen is that we have to acknowledge that we can't fix our own sin. We can't do enough good things to somehow counter our sin. In fact, Paul says in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Meaning, if I could somehow counter out my sin by doing enough good things, to outweigh my bad things, I would just get proud about it. So how does a person move from having a rebellion toward the anointed king, Jesus himself, to yielding to him? Well, we have to acknowledge, I need him. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it myself. And then we have to put our belief in him. We have to transfer the dependence of our life from ourselves, thinking that I can be a good enough person to earn merit with God, and put my total trust in the person of Jesus Christ, believing that he is God, that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin and rose again from the dead. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And the psalmist here calls to the nations and says to the nations, when you stand there with your fist up to the heavens, that's an empty stand. It's like trying to fight against God from a cardboard fort. Now in verses 4 through through 9, we see what the Lord's response is to those who think they can stand in rejection of the Lord and in rejection of the Lord's anointed king. Look with me at verse 4. The Lord's response, he laughs. Isn't that great? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. It is silly to think that you can stand against the king that the Lord puts on the throne. It says here that the Lord just laughs at that. 
In fact, it says he's going to speak to the nations, and what he says is terrifying. What does he say? Verse 6, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, to be a holy place, meaning it's the Lord's. And the Lord says, I have put my anointed king in a position to reign and to rule. The point is this. To fight against the king is to fight against the Lord. To fight against the ultimate king, the one that Hebrews, the Hebrew worshipers called Messiah, which means anointed one, that the Greeks called Christos or Christ. To a fight against that ultimate son of David who will reign on David's throne forever is to fight against God himself. And so it tells us here that the Lord scoffs and causes fear by telling them his plan. Hey, by the way, I put him there. In fact, when we come to verses 7 through 9, it shifts and the king himself is speaking in these verses saying, I have the position to reign because the Lord put me in a position to reign. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Now we're going to look at this in a moment, but verse seven is referring back to second Samuel chapter seven. And in second Samuel seven, the Lord promises David that he would always have a descendant that descendant will sit on his throne forever and ever and ever. That the Lord would be a father to the king and the king would be a son to the father. And as you look at Israel's history, every time a new descendant of David was put on the throne, they referred to him as a son of God. With all the privileges of an inheritance But yet, ultimately, it is the Son of God who will reign. The second Samuel 7 looks to. Notice verse 7 says, He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, Jesus Christ is eternal. How could this verse look forward to Jesus Christ? There is never a time when Jesus was not. But the word begotten here is carrying the idea of Jesus is the one and only unique son of the Father who shares his attributes. Jesus Christ is the one to whom, verse 7, ultimately looks. He has the right to reign. He will reign. In fact, verse 8 says that the Father is going to give the nations over to him. And verse 9 says that Jesus Christ will break them with a rod or a scepter of iron, as if he was shattering pottery plates. Now that's a good word for us to remember. Those of us who have placed our trust in the person of Jesus Christ, those of us who 
have yielded to his authority in our lives, it's good for us to remember that what Psalm 2 says is going to happen is going to happen. That Jesus Christ is going to reign. He's going to come back, set up his kingdom on earth. All those who stand in rejection of him will experience his wrath. In 1988... My wife Barbara and I moved from Dallas, Texas to North Dakota. And we lived in North Dakota for eight years from 1988 to 1995. And during those years was kind of the height of missile proliferation in the U.S. We had missile silos all around us. I used to go on Mondays and go out and hunt. And it would be very common as I drove out to where I would hunt to have armed vehicles from the Air Force come and switch out the crews that would spend days underground in those manned missile sites. And one crew would come out of underground and the next crew would go in. You can imagine those guys going home and their spouse says, how's the last few days been? Well, I've been underground. And we didn't press any buttons. I mean, that's kind of what their life was like. But that's the world in which we live. That's the world in which I grew up hearing in school about Russia and how Russia has the ability to blow up the entire earth. You know what? As a Christian, Psalm 2 should give us an entirely different perspective of world affairs. Psalm 2 tells us that no nation will be able to stand against the Lord. Psalm 2 actually is a reminder to us that we will not, here on earth, suffer total obliteration by nuclear arms. It's not going to happen. Why? Because Psalm 2 tells us that Jesus Christ is going to return to earth. The nations are still going to be here. They're going to have their fists raised to him and he's going to wipe them out as if they are fighting with cardboard forts. You see, Psalm 2 gives us hope. Psalm 2 reminds us that our Lord is coming back to earth. He is going to set up his reign. Those who stand in rejection of him are going to be met with judgment. Now, I want to go back just for a moment and look at that passage in Second Samuel. It's one of those key passages in the Bible that all of us, uh, about which all of us need to be aware because it helps us fit our Bibles together. Second Samuel chapter seven. I'm going to start reading down in about verse 11. This is the Lord talking to David. He says, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you, David, that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And every descendant of David as they were anointed as king, came underneath the partial fulfillment of these verses. But these verses will not be totally fulfilled until the descendant of David returns to earth, is seated on David's throne, and a very literal kingdom is established here on earth. The book of Zechariah tells us that when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to come and he's actually going to come and his feet are going to touch on the mount. He's going to come back to earth and set up his reign. And the psalmist, as he draws this psalm to a close in verses 10 through 12, ends the psalm with a very somber note. He basically says, wise up. He calls to the peoples of the earth and tells them to submit to the Son of God and escape wrath, God's wrath. Now that's not something that we talk much about. It's something the Bible talks a lot about. God's wrath will be poured out Onto those who stand in rejection of the Son. Notice in verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Stop rejecting the Lord and stop rejecting the Lord's anointed Son. Why? Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling, even those who worship him to enter his presence is a somber thing. Do homage to the sun. Literally that Hebrew phrase is kiss the sun. You can picture uh, uh, someone who is underneath a king bowing before him and maybe kissing his signet ring. It says, yield yourself to the sun's authority. Why? That he not become anguish, angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. You see, the Bible says that one of the main motivations for people to stop rejecting the Son is to avoid the wrath of God. But for some reason... As in our circles, even here in North American evangelicalism, we don't talk much about the wrath of God. I started thinking back, even in our little, we call um, these little gospel tracts, little booklets that talk about the good news of Jesus. They don't talk about God's wrath. The first one that I remember was Campus Crusade's Four Spiritual Laws. Do you remember how that starts? Law number one, God loves you. And it has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's true. He does love us. But that tract does not talk about God's wrath. I used to use one called the bridge to life. 
The first principle of the bridge to life is that God's God's purpose, that God loves us and offers us a full, abundant life and eternal life. That's true, but it doesn't talk about God's wrath. Even in the little pamphlet that we use here at Faith Bible Church called May I Ask You a Question, it begins by talking about bad news. And it says, here's the bad news, we're all sinners. Sin means that we've missed the mark. When we lie, hate, lust, or gossip, we've missed the standard God has set. And then it says, the bad news gets worse. Bad news number two, the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And then it goes on to say, the Bible says that by sinning, we have earned death... That means we deserve to die and be separated from God forever. That's true. But that's all it says. It goes on to the new, the good news. And what it doesn't say is to be separated from God also involves suffering the wrath of God. It's bad enough to be separated from him, but the Bible goes further and says those who stand in rejection of the person of Jesus Christ not only are separated from God, they are going to face the wrath of God. There's a verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that says this. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means the person who has come to the point in their life where they say, I'm a sinner, I know I am, I can't fix it. I put my trust in the person of Jesus Christ. That person will never face God's wrath. I've shared this account with you over many years, several times, but it was a life-changing moment for me. When Barbara and I lived in North Dakota, often on a Sunday morning, after our services would begin, there was an old hermit that would come and slip in the back of our church. A hermit, if some of you young people don't know, is he's just like a loner. He would never talk to anybody. He lived really far out in the sticks. And he was scary looking. His name was Lyle. He never talked. He always wore a bomber hat, which is like a leather hat with fur inside with these straps that came down. And he wasn't shaven and he wouldn't talk to anybody. And I started thinking, I need to find out what's the deal with this guy. Because he comes in at the end before we're done. He always leaves. He never talks to anybody. So I found out where he lived and I drove out to where he lived, pulled into his yard and all these mean dogs started coming out of sheds. And so I had, I was surrounded by these dogs and they were showing their teeth and it was scary. And then Lyle stepped out of this old shed and started walking toward me. And I can't depict to you how scary Lyle looked, but he was a scary looking guy with his bomber hat that never came off and his whiskers. And I was nervous. I prayed. And he comes right up to my door. And I opened my door of the car. I stood up. And the very first words out of his mouth 
was this. Do you know what my favorite Bible verse is? And I says, no, I don't know. And from memory, he said this, as tears started coming out of his eyes. He said, it's Romans 8, 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that was one of those life-changing moments for me. Somehow, I don't know how, but the grace of Jesus Christ touched that hermit. And he knew that he would never face the wrath of God. It was the most important truth that he knew. And here the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, Be wise. Stop standing in rejection of the Son. Instead, come to him. You know, Paul goes on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This theme of wrath is a real theme in the Bible. And he talks about the fact that the Son is coming back. And chapter 1 verse 8 says he's coming back dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Meaning those who have heard the gospel and reject it, and those who have even rejected the revelation that they have been given through creation. Both groups of people, it says that if they stand in rejection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is going to deal out retribution. And verse 9 says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's wrath. And here the psalmist says to the nations of the earth, the peoples of the earth, be wise. Stop standing in rejection of the Son, but instead become his worshiper. And you may be here this morning, and if you really are honest with yourself, know in your heart that you have never humbled yourself to a point of saying to God, I'm not good enough. Of saying to God, I know I'm a sinner and I can't fix it. You've never really taken the dependence of your life off of yourself, thinking that you can be a good enough person to earn merit with God and put your dependence solely on the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've not done that, I would encourage you not to leave this place without doing it. One of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church, we call them elders, will be back in the prayer room. And I would encourage you just to stop back there. They've got some material they could hand to you. You could say, hey, can I have some of that material about how to know I'm right with God? They can give you some material. You can take out your own Bible, look up some of the passages that we've talked about this morning, and clearly see what Jesus has done for you and how you can know for sure that you're right with God. And for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, Psalm 2 reminds us he is coming back. He is going to set up his reign. We don't have to be fearful of the affairs of this world because God is working out his perfect plan. Father, I thank you for Psalm 2 and the reminder in it that 
your anointed king, your son, is coming, dealing out your wrath against those who stand in rejection of Jesus Christ, and is coming to set up his reign on David's throne. And we pray that you would encourage us in that truth this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.